Welcome to Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we're coming to you on WLIW 88.3 FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also always stream online at WLIW.org slash radio. And uh, our guest today is kind of a local legend, if I can use that word. Yeah, like a true uh, son of the East End uh, and somebody I've actually known and been, been really close with since I was prepubescent. My man, my <laughs> man, Paul, you, my man, Paul Anacone. And why did you shoot me a look? Why did you shoot me, you shot me a look? When you I knew you when you were prepubescent, I think. Or yeah. I, knew when you were, I knew you when you were pubescent. Uh, exactly. That's what I knew you. Well, anyway, but anyway. my man, Paul Anacone. Is, yeah. Is, is, hey, uh, guys. Thank, thanks for having me. I'm not even sure where to go after that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like, I, I, I would have said Alec and I have known each other since we were like six years old. Alec got into the whole prepubescent area. I would just stay away from all that. We, our, friendship, our friendship was cemented at the Brickhampton Back in the Surf Club in the 1970s. Uh, frolicking in the surf, making uh, ball tracks in the sand. Oh my God. And uh, trying not to look into the hole in the women's solarium. Where, where was this? Where? Bridgehampton oh. Racket and Surf Club. Oh my gosh. Oh, God. Oh, welcome, Paul. Thanks, Bridget. This is a difference. See, my memories would be the, uh, the baseball games at Alex's houses, the trees and all the cookouts we had. And playing, you know, playing uh, a, a frisbee golf. See, Alec goes, you know, to the PG thirteen or even the R rated stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know why? It's because he's had to do animation for so long. Oh, okay. PJ, had, he's had, throwing it that PG rating to the wind. So one of the things I love about the East End of Long Island, one of the things I love about uh, my own, uh, you know, life is like friendships like I have with you, Paul, and ocean of childhood memories. And adolescent memories and, uh, you know, memories yeah. of making your own fun, playing games and uh, really letting the world spin by well, while dreaming big dreams. In, in, in the case of, of our guest today, uh, Paul Anacone, uh, he, he dreamt big dreams and, and he went and got them. Uh, so we're going to talk about that a little bit, yeah. about uh, what it's like to, to grow up uh, out on the East End and, and be an elite. Uh, athlete. Um, yeah, and then, and, but also the idea that if you grow up out in the East End, people automatically think you're elite, and that's really not the case. I mean, you, I mean, elite I, athlete, but yes. not elite human being. Right. I mean, elite human being. In, Wait a second. Whoa, 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 whoa. I, 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 feel, I feel pretty good about myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> elite human being in every way, but not an elitist. You know, Paul, I have to tell you something. I, I just fed him, so he's a little logy. That's uh, what it is. Yeah, all right, I, all right. Yeah, just put me in the corner and have me stare at the wall. Anyway, but let's let's talk. Well, let's talk a little bit about growing up on the East End. Like, where where did you go to school? I think uh, what Alex was trying to say about being an elitist is my parents were school teachers. My dad uh, was a principal and superintendent of schools in Sag Harbor for many many years. My mom was a guidance counselor, um, and we were locals. And I went to East Hampton uh, Middle School. East Hampton High School. But then I, I actually had to make a tough decision when I was about 13 because I had these dreams and aspirations of trying to be a pro tennis player. At that time, the nearest indoor court was um, in Quag in West Hampton, which is about 35 miles away. And there really wasn't any competition. So I moved down to Boletari's Tennis Academy and spent about three years down there and then came back and graduated with my high school class in East Hampton. So I had a little bit of a splintered uh, relationship, but uh, 
when I got to be about 13, 14, and Alec, uh, should I use the word pubescent here, prepubescent, adolescent? What would you like me to do? We were testosterone-filled yeah. young stallions. At that, at that age, at that age, Alec, I remember. Yeah, at, that, at that age, I had to uh, make a decision and go to Boletarius to try to get some really serious competition and national and international levels to see if I could make my dreams become reality. And uh, it was a big risk, but my parents were really supportive. At 13 years old, to have that kind of like, to really know that you've got it um, and that you want to pursue it, that's amazing to have that kind of support. Well, here's the thing, Bridget, is that we didn't know if I had it or, or what I had other than, you know, just being uh, someone with dreams. And I had a decent amount of talent. I was one of the top kind of 10 or 15 players in the country for my age, which at that age doesn't mean much other than you're pretty good. Um, but the way I looked at it, my parents were pretty pragmatic thinkers, was that, look, the worst case scenarios, I'm going to go down there. And I'm going to get a tremendous amount of experience. And in the worst case, I'm probably going to get a free college education. So I'm going to get a free college scholarship. So I, I didn't feel like it was that uh, much of a risk. Um, and I thought it was a great opportunity um, for me to kind of turn dreams into realities. And that's uh, that's what sent me on my way. So much to talk about. And, and literally, uh, like uh, with, with great admiration for you, Paul, uh, you've cast a lot of shadows in your life, uh, both on and off the tennis court. But one of the things that is interesting while we're talking about Boletari is from what I kind of know or knew about Boletari, um, I like your style of play was always, I, I always called it almost like a video game style. You came out of an era when, you know, you were a chip and charge, serve and volley, try to get to the net, try and dominate the front third of the court. And wasn't Boletari kind of more of a baseline guy? You know, it's interesting, Alec, is what happened, and I'm totally going to date myself and you too, Alec, uh, by this, is that back in those days, you know, I grew up with wooden rackets, right? I grew up with wooden rackets in the late 70s yeah. and early 80s. And so I was more of a baseline player. It wasn't until I was uh, really 18 years old when I switched to the Prince Graphite, which totally changed my game. And Nick, Bol right. Nick, Bol uh, Nick Boletari and my brother, Steve, who coached me and who's put up with me for his whole life and my whole life. And uh, Mike DePalmer Sr., the late, great Mike DePalmer Sr., coach of University of Tennessee, said, you got to get to the net. You, you use a big racket. You're very athletic. You're not going to be a pro tennis player from the baseline. So that was the goal kind of when I left Boletari's and got to college under the auspices of Coach DePalmer and my brother. Um, and also Nick from afar, which was use your skills. You're an athlete. You're not a baseline player. Come forward. And that's kind of where it started. And I just followed that. And that's uh, kind of what led me through my my career. It's, you know, one of the biggest themes I think about in life and in general is whether you're an academic or whether you're a scientist or whether you're an athlete, you've got to know what your game is, what your strengths are. You've got to define who you are as a human being, define who you are in terms of your skill sets. And then you've got to try to pursue themes that maximize those skill sets. And I had some really good people that understood, look, this is a very atypical way to play tennis, but it suits you perfectly. Live and die doing this. And at the end of the day, I kind of went through with the old adage of, if you're going to win or lose, win or lose doing what you do best. And that's what I did. You get to a place where you're, you're an elite junior tennis player, 
And then you're, you're kind of told and informed that you're going to need to change your philosophy of how you play if you want to achieve your dreams. And I would imagine that would require a lot of almost a step back in expectations and results initially. How hard was that? Well, I, you know, one of the things I can look back at now with pride <laughs> is after being a, being a coach for the last 30 years is because I was able to do that, I felt like I was pretty open-minded. I trusted the people around me. I trusted their evaluation of what my skills were and their understanding of combining that with where I wanted to go. I didn't want to be a I didn't want to be a really good junior player. I didn't want to be a really good college player. I wanted to be the best player I could be compared to all the other best players on this planet. I didn't know that much about that. So I had to trust Boletari and Coach De Palmer and my brother to say, this is what you need to do. And so when I bought into that philosophy, for, from then on, Alec, it really wasn't that complicated. My first year in college, I was ranked 47, I think, in the country at the end of the year. Um, and that took a year of kind of, I would out of how, out of how many? Out of 48? Yeah, 40, I'm yeah kidding. 47 out of 48. So that's not bad. Um, but, 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 but look, that's in Division I college tennis. So every Division I school in the country, and I believe, you know, I believe there at that time there was over 200 Division I schools. Um, and, and so, and then my second year in college tennis, I was ranked number two in the country and one of the best players in the country. And I started playing some pro tournaments that year. So I kind of got a sense, a taste that, hey, I'm on the right track. So it didn't, it didn't take that long, but uh, it was about buying into a philosophy. That's all. I want to go back to that because what you're saying is like at a really young age, and I think maybe they're more successful at this like in other countries because it sounds almost like medieval or, or Japanese. It's like kind of like senpai kohai or mentor and disciple relationship where a young person really apprentices or, you know, believes and trusts. Yeah. So you're really talking about mentorship, which of course, you know, you have gone on to do in your, uh, on your own by coaching. So it's really about trust is what you're talking about. And one of the things that, that I also was hearing before. Uh, is knowing who you are and knowing what you do best, which is also, I would say, uh, the, uh, your authentic self has to kind of emerge. Yeah, and th and that's look as a teenager, think back. How how do I know that? I mean, I I mean, I I know I know what I think I know, right? As a teenager, and and one of my things is I was pretty competitive. I knew I was pretty athletic, but these people around me, my brother and Coach De Palmer and Nick they knew what the best players were doing in the world and they knew me and my skill sets so well. So who am I really to debate them about that? And, and I think it's, so it's you, a, you did kind of like turn yourself over to the trust. Yeah I, mean, right? yeah. I think that's important. It doesn't mean, and it doesn't mean blindly move forward. I asked a lot of questions and believe me, I had doubts, but ultimately, you know, you put a, a group of people around you, no matter what you're chasing in life, no matter what you're chasing, you better know what you don't know and then trust the people around you to help you figure that stuff out because, you know. And then you get the results yeah. because then the following year you were the number two seed. Right. So you so you saw that it worked. So then what happens? Well, I mean, how do you make the jump from that to, I guess, the professional circuit? Well, there's always setbacks, right, Bridget? And you're only as good as uh, my my life's teachings have always been 
you're only as good as what you show in times of adversity. And, and I think that's true in everything that happens in life, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's, you know, an austerity budget in high school, whether it's, you know, not getting paid, whether you've just broken up with your wife or girlfriend or both. And then how do you act in those moments of it? <laughs> sorry, sorry. There. We, was, we, we guys are so look slow. There. You guys are so slow. I can't believe that. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have to have those moments of adversity, right? And, and so my adversity came my second year in college tennis. When I finished number two in the country, I was going to turn professional. That summer, I played a bunch of professional tournaments, and I lost in the last round of the qualifying event to get into the main draw, which is a qualifying event, so you can play in the big event seven times in a row. So I lost seven times in a row in the last round before getting in, So including, including the U.S. Open. And so that's a time of adversity. So then I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Am I really ready to turn pro? And so what I did was, once again, lean on Coach De Palmer and Nick and my brother, and they said, why don't you go to Europe and just play some events in the fall in Europe and then come back and play the rest of your uh, junior year in college out. So that's what I did. So I went to Europe. I qualified and got to the uh, – that took some pressure off of me. I qualified and got to the quarterfinals of an event. I qualified in another event, and I, I kind of you know, had a big sigh of relief and belief that I actually could do that. So when I went back to school in January, I felt like I was really ready. So my third year in college, I finished the year number one. I didn't win the NCAAs, um, but I finished the year number one. And then right after the NCAAs, because I had done well in that previous fall, I was ranked about 300 in the world. But right after the NCAAs, about a month later, I went to Europe qualified at Wimbledon and got to the quarterfinals. And that put my ranking inside the top you know, 80 or something. And so then I was on my way. And what yeah. was your mindset at that moment? I mean, Wimbledon, holy cow. Well, my mindset was really simple, Bridget, is I was working so hard to win the NCAAs that I had done all my hard work in college to win the NCAAs, which I wasn't mentally uh, able to do. I put an unbelievable amount of pressure on myself. I'd only, I lost one match that year going into the NCAAs, I think I was, I don't know, 50-something and one. I hate to be arrogant, but I was pretty much the favorite to win, and I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with it. So I went into the NCAAs, and I was really nervous. I lost in the quarterfinals, but all the hard work that I had done paid off a month later at Wimbledon. And so that's why, to me, biggest coaching philosophy with everyone I work with and everything in life is you have to realize no matter what you do, this is a journey. It's not a destination. These are all bus stops. These are not, there's no end game until the lights go out for good. So every tournament I played, everything I looked forward to was just another bus stop. And when I got to Wimbledon and I got to the quarterfinals, I started to understand that, that everywhere I went was just another bus stop along the journey. Yeah. And uh, I believe the only place in the world where uh, success comes before work is in the dictionary. Well done. Huh. <laughs> well done. <laughs> He's such a pain well in the ass, done. I'm telling like you. Oh you know what? This is a perfect place for us to take a little break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Lockhart. And our guest, local tennis legend and fantastic person all around, Paul Anacone. Uh, you're listening to us on WLIW 
88.3 FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online, WLIW.org slash radio. And we're going to be right back after this. Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did? Looking like a true survivor, feeling like a little kid. And I'm still standing after all this time, thinking of the We're back with Sundays on the East End with uh, Alex Sokolow. And Bridget Leroy. And we're talking with Paul Anacone. And I want to go back to your, your family because, um, of course, Dom wrote uh, the Eye on Education column for years for The Independent. He was one of the first people we had on board. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was, a, I guess, a middle class upbringing, but education was a very important part of your upbringing since both of your parents are educators. Do you think that that somehow... I don't know that that's hereditary because it sounds what you're saying is about learning and about teaching others how to kind of follow in your footsteps. Does that yeah, make sense? I think so, Bridget. I look, I, my parents, you know, are both intelligent and aware and kind of expansive thinkers. And I, and I didn't know this as a kid, but I, you know, I'm a big believer and you kind of become a product of your environment. I think I learned a lot from both my mom and dad about kind of taking things in and about trying to learn as you go through it. Now, when I'm a teenager and then when I'm playing pro tennis, it was pretty mono-focused, right? And now I can look back in hindsight and, and think that. But I, I really think it must have been very difficult for both of them being educators, knowing that I was kind of putting all my eggs in one basket. I mean, I went to Boletaries and then I didn't finish college and I went on to you know chase tennis dreams. But I feel like I'm kind of a student of the world and that I wouldn't really trade any of the memories that I've had traveling around the globe for the last 35 years for a bachelor's degree in economics. I just wouldn't do it. I mean, I, I've been unbelievably fortunate. That's the institutional education that you're, you're I think, referring to. I, I would say, though, uh, just to follow what Bridget was saying, I've always thought this about you, Paul, and, and, and not just as a coach, but definitely it's not a surprise you went into coaching, that you've succeeded in coaching, because it is the passing along of wisdom and it's the uh, the mentoring. And I certainly uh, would look at when you were coaching uh, Pete Sampras, when you're coaching Tim Hedman, when you're coaching um, Roger Federer. I, I always assumed that you, that you were as much a mentor and a life coach as you were a tennis coach for these yeah, very elite uh, performers. Because it sounds like you like you're, what you're saying is a lot of it is the head game. It is. It, I mean, I, I think it is. And I like I think Look, I think almost in every aspect, when you get to a certain level, let's say you're at a certain level, whatever, whatever the adventure is, the mind leads the body. You know, that's what I think. In other words, you can't compare a high school football player with an NFL player. But once you get to the NFL and you're there, your mind is going to lead your body um, unless you're physically having issues. And so part of being a coach for me I think the most important part is actually listening and understanding, listening and understanding the person that you're dealing with. And in an individual sport, the biggest challenge is knowing the personality. This is one of the reasons why I love tennis so much is that it's very different than coaching a team sport. And Alec, you would know this very well, basketball and baseball and football, the players generally conform to a coach's philosophy. 
Greg Popovich's philosophy in San Antonio, how Bill Belichick runs the New England Patriots. That's what they do. A great coach in an individual sport has to figure out how to say what they want to very different personalities to get them to buy in. So that's why I, I believe that I've had to listen an unbelievable amount to understand all these different ways to say things so that they can bought in, be bought in by different personalities. So I feel like I'm continually a student. I'm always learning. And, and that's why I, I really cherish and feel so uh, fortunate to have spent so, so much great time with people like Volateri, De Palmer, my brother, and then coaching people like Federer and Sampras um, and Tim Henman and Sloan Stevens, because I've learned so many different things and now it's up to me to try to digest it all, be pragmatic, and understand what I can use and pass on. And does that distill to a basic philosophy, know who you are, be who you're supposed to be? It, yeah, exactly. And, and Alec, you, look, I, I just think you have to understand who you are and what you're trying to do to give yourself a fair um, kind of a fair chance to maximize what you want to be. And there's no right or wrong. It's what do you want to be? You know, this is... It's so interesting because I'm going to do a shameless plug here. This is really the reason why I wrote my book, because I, I, I just found like I learned so much through my journey of being around amazing people like Voluntary, like De Palmer, like my parents, like my brother, and then coaching all time greats. And to kind of take all that and use tennis as a metaphor for life. And that's really why I decided to write my book. I got hung up and wasn't going to do it because it was a nightmare for a long period of time. But my beautiful wife, Elizabeth, talked me into it. Um, and, and her father was a literary agent who used to represent George Plimpton, amongst others. And I was in his office one day just shooting the breeze about tennis. And we got into anecdotal stuff. And he said to me, why don't you write a book? And I said, well, for one thing, I can't write. Is that a problem? And he said, he just started laughing. He said, no, all you have to do is talk. And so there, there is where kind of the seed for coaching for life, which is the name of my book, was written. And, and my wife, Elizabeth, helped me through so many different complexities of it. Um, I had a really brilliant man named Gerald Hausman at iRead Books help me uh, complete it. Um, and I have so many people that have been really supportive, but really it was driven by Elizabeth and, and, and her ability, because she's heard so many of my stories, and her ability to make what I say make sense on a page. And, and so uh, once I started on it and really dug into all the things I had learned from Pete and Roger and Tim and Coach De Palmer and Volatari and my brother and my parents, I was like, these are all these are all habits to be used in everything you do. It's not just about tennis. It's not just about basketball. And so I go back to the original question that you guys asked me. And my point was, how do you deal with adversity? And that's what, that's what this book is about. How good is your average day? What is your process that's going to hold up under pressure? And it doesn't matter whether it's center court at Wimbledon or sitting in front of a bunch of students at Southampton College giving a professorial uh, uh conversation, given a professorial class education period. I mean, it's the same thing. And all these things were like, wow, these are all habits that translate to different parts of your life. And so then I just went on and I wrote it and, and I had a lot of great support, like I said, and I learned so much writing it, remembering what Sampras was able to accomplish under pressure in times of adversity, how Roger Federer goes through life and deals with 
the most ridiculous expectations that any one human being should have on his shoulders and takes it in stride. You know, all these different themes I thought were absolutely invaluable. And I just like, wow, this is something that's really interesting and that can help a lot of people through a lot of different processes. You talk about habit and stuff like that, but there still is that moment, just like the moment uh, where, if I can say, you kind of like you choked before before you you right. turned around in, in your in your collegiate years. I mean, how do you? You've had so many like amazing moments that people only dream of, like like becoming a coach for someone like a Sampras or a Federer, and being on the Tennis Channel. I mean, you've gone so far above and beyond just a tennis player, and I'm putting that in quotes, there must have been a lot of moments where you really had to overcome, because we all have it, Every you know, everybody has it, the kind of like the the voice that says you can't do it, or that you're not good enough, or that what, what the hell am I the one, why am I the one doing this? Yeah, look, and that's a great question. I mean, look, I come from pretty humble upbringing, and I come from pretty humble parents, and I just sit here and look back and say, wow, you know, if this is it for me, I've had a pretty amazing journey. You know, I've, I've had a pretty full life. I mean, I've got great children, a beautiful wife, um, wonderful parents, great friends. And I've had these professional experiences that you just talked about, Bridget, that sometimes you have to shake your head and say, how is it me? And, and so I, I do believe a lot of that is just letting go, following your dreams, and trying not to put judgment on yourself as you go through those dreams, remembering the macro while evaluating the micro. And I think that that's really important. And you have to be able to do that with some pragmatism and a little bit of detaching yourself from emotion. And I think that that's what's really driven me um, to be able to be, quote unquote, I hate to use this word, successful, but I would say, quote unquote, happy because I, I, I've been able to do this in a way where I was taught to deal with the adversity and understand that bus stop mentality that I talked to you about. Like every day is a new challenge. Every day is um, going to be a new beginning. And, and one tennis tournament or one test that a kid takes or one failed application to a college that a kid received, that's, that's not it. That is a spec. That's just a spec that's on a big map. So let's move on. Let's digest and move on. And I think that that mentality kind of helped me deal with some of the pressures that we put on ourselves. And that mentality really helped teach me to deal with adversity, helped teach me to understand the difference between success and failure, but more importantly, helped me help teach me the difference between happiness and sadness and, and stability and instability. Wow. What I'm hearing is the results kind of take care of themselves, that, that it is the journey uh, and it is the focusing on, in the case of tennis, you know, uh, for most people who will never achieve that, that level of tennis but still enjoy tennis a lot, focusing on hitting the ball over one object but within a certain area right. is enough. Right. right. I mean, it's, it's hard. Look, it, and in, in no way, shape or form am I trying to minimalize competitiveness or drive or ambition. I, that's there. That's absolutely there. But how do you manage it? How do you deal with it? How does it lay out on your roadmap for your journey of what you want to do? That, that's what de that's what defines you. That's not that's that that's what defines the happiness and the level of success and the level of stability and the level of appreciation that you really enjoy as you go through it. It's not about, did I win this week? It's about what's the culmination of my big 
big bucket full of bus stops along the way. And I, I look back at all my bus stops so far and I'm like, wow, they've been pretty darn good. They haven't all been great. They haven't all been successes. I've had a million failures. I've had way more failures than successes. But the successes, which I kind of, um, in, in terms of analogy, I like to use, like I said, I use the word happiness instead of successes, ha- are so overwhelmingly more powerful than the sadness or the failures that they kind of make all the other stuff melt away. But what I think is so interesting, and maybe this is something that you see more often in like student athletes or something like that. It sounds like you've kind of always had what I call like the condor view, the bird's eye perspective, even when you were really young, like, you know, you kind of were able to look at the whole picture rather than, you know, the, you think of a typical teenager, you know, they get one text and sets them off for two weeks, right. you know, it, but but you were you know able to really have this kind of bird's eye view of where you wanted to go of the of the triumphs and and the tribulations and to really set your eye I mean I hate this saying because we use it so much set your eyes on the mm-hmm. prize and then you had you know you've had this extraordinary career and we're going to talk more about that after the break but also I mean the coaching like you've said this isn't just for tennis or basketball as you said this is like for life it's really about the whole journey not. Um, it's about, as you said, happiness rather than success in, in every facet of anybody's life, really. And, and uh, as a much wiser man than I once opined, <laughs> I hate uh, that word. <laughs> there is no way to happiness. Happiness is the way. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, my God. The carbs are kicking in again. Paul, we're going to take another little break. Uh, we're talking with Paul Anacom. You're listening. God, listen, he's making himself laugh again. I can't believe it. Sunday's on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokol. Who's very, very silly. You're listening to us on WLIW.org slash radio. We're going to be right back. with us on WLIW 88.3 FM Long Island's only NPR station and this is Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow and we're talking with Paul Anacone East Hamptonite whose uh, father was uh, superintendent principal of the Sag Harbor so Pearson yeah. right yeah Pearson, Pearson? Yeah. yeah and yet somehow you didn't go to Pearson no I went to East Hampton Pearson. High School East Hampton <laughs> High School I was uh, not a Sag Harbor whaler I was at East Hampton Boniker proud you're Go Bonkers. Right. My, mm-hmm. my son graduated in high school, one of my kids. But, you know, we were talking about your book, Coaching for Life, and we're talking about coaching in general. Let's talk about now. Let's talk about these incredibly strange, weird times where, you know, what, what kind of advice do you have for people to keep their eyes on the prize now? I mean, everything is either No stopped. pressure, Paul. Yeah, no, no pressure. pressure. No pressure. <laughs> Sure. No, yeah. We're having a gl- global pandemic. No problem. You work best under pressure. So I'm saying extra pressure, Paul, extra pressure. What do we do? How do you get people like, how do you get people motivated right now? I mean, what are you doing? Look, I've got three kids that I talk to regularly um, about it. And I no, we haven't been here, right? I mean, we've never, this hasn't happened since really since 1918, right? The Spanish flu. I mean, we haven't had a pandemic like this. And we're living in an unbelievably um, volatile, divided time kind of nationally. But who would have imagined in the year 2020 
that a little virus was going to shut down the entire globe. Not not just the U.S. It shut down the entire globe. I mean, it's the most incredible thing um, to think that with all the genius people we have on our planet, that this is where we are. This is the this is what happened because none of us were prepared. And, and to me, that's that's incredible. I mean, it's, it says a lot about the sign of the times. So that being said, we are where we are. How do we deal with it? How do you deal with the really difficult times of the unknown? Well, you listen to experts. You try to do things that keeps you healthy, that takes care of your well-being, that's smart. Um, and, and you try to understand how you can get through day-to-day life. And look, there's a lot of people going through a lot of hard times. Unemployment's at a hugely high uh, rate. We have so many problems going on with social uh, injustice. That's now being hopefully on the forefront of the burner as well. There, are, this, these are amazing and challenging times. So, so much of it is about perspective um, and about. To me, the biggest thing is how empathetic can you be? How compassionate can you be? Can you look at through life and can you look through these things in a lens from somebody else other than what you think you know? And then if you can do that and you can embrace other people and their differences and you can embrace um, the challenges that we're in and you take things in an optimistic way in the macro, but understand in the micro we're being challenged, then I think you go through it in a very health, uh, kind of healthy, mindful way. Take care of yourself, be aware, be observant, be empathetic, um, be compassionate, be kind, and really listen to people I think that are experts and that are kind of out of the political realm when it comes to scientific stuff, and also listen to people that are out of the political realm when it comes to social injustice, and listen to your heart. What's right? What's best? How should we live? You know, it's not that complicated. We make it very complicated. That's fascinating, Paul. Like, I'm hearing everything, and I distill it down to, uh, you know, surround yourself with experts, but people who are better than you are at certain things and keep things simple and know yourself and know that everything is a chance to hopefully get better. You, everything's an audition for the next one, basically. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. I mean, that's kind of what every day is, right? Every day, each one of those bus stops that I talk about is different. And this bus stop, this current bus stop has been a long one and has been a very challenging one um, in, in terms of fear, a lot of different fear the fear of the unknown, the fear of what what is COVID-19? What does it mean? How, how come we don't understand it? How come there isn't a vaccine? How come, why, when's it gonna end? You know, and, and today's world of instantaneous social media, everyone's got an opinion. There's 9 million ideas and 9 million things that are written. Try to stick to facts about that stuff. And in terms of the social stuff, I think it's very simple. Treat other people how you wanna be treated. My parents taught me that. It's not that complicated. You mentioned your parents, and this is just fully, uh, you know, among the people who are listening, uh, they are parents, they have kids, the kids that have dreams, kids that, whether they're in sports or in, in other fields. Would you have any advice and or, uh, you know, observation uh, about, you know, what, what you would tell parents who have kids who, who want to, you know, reach for the brass ring? The biggest theme is understand the macro the macro journey and understand the consequences and the realities of what dreams are, the pros and cons of them, 
and then try to delineate them in a pathway that kind of examines the micro in a really good step-by-step process. And again, evaluate the process, not the result as you go along the way. I'll give you a great example. Let's say you have a 16-year-old tennis player that wants to be the best tennis player in the world that goes and plays the national clay courts in Louisville, Kentucky, loses a heartbreaking match, 11-9 in the third set, and then goes into the locker room because he's so frustrated, he punches a locker and breaks his wrist. He breaks his knuckle in his right hand. So as a parent, the way to deal with that would be, I'm really nervous that that meant that much to you that you harmed yourself. Why, why did you do that? That worries me. You want to be a pro tennis player. You want to do this. We want you to do the best you can. But why is there so much pent up um, emotion and anger over a loss of a tennis match? And then have the conversation with them about that. By the way, that was my dad talking to me after I did that at 16 National Clay Courts. I was talking about <laughs> very specific. Yeah, very and then went specific. out for pizza, a pepperoni <laughs> yeah. pizza at the uh, and- <laughs> I know. I was like, he, he, I gave Alec a look. I was like, this is very right, and Paul, This Paul, does not sound and like you, fiction. And when, and when you look back <laughs> at that moment, because I, I, I've had those moments, um, I, and I could say self-reflectively, uh, my expectations exceeded the reality, and my false sense of control uh, ended up creating a sense of of anger and humiliation that I didn't get what I thought I deserved. Yeah, no, that, that's that's fair, and that's putting the cart before the horse. And you know, I lost to somebody who's a very good player, who's one of my best friends for many years on tour, and stuff happens. And 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 at the time when you're immersed in it, it seems much more important than it is. Now, I, I don't want to sear so crunchy granola way away from the idea of competing and having drive and having dis all that stuff matters. Of course, you have to have that. The situation you described where you punched the locker, that was the micro view, correct? That was not the macro view. Yeah, exactly. That's like, okay, who's going to even think about this? Not Not 20 years from now. How about like 12 months from right. now? You know, it uh, means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. That doesn't mean it shouldn't mean anything losing a heartbreaking match, but it sure as hell shouldn't mean you go punch a locker and break your knuckle in your right hand. That's what it shouldn't mean. So let's go back to this book, Coaching for Life. So, you know, you're, you say, I'm not a writer. You get convinced. You sit down. You write this book. What happens after that? Do you think you have another book in you? Do you, do you think that... Did you learn anything from putting this stuff in writing? I don't know. It was really difficult. And the pro, I mean, I really did so much of it. Like I said, my wife was a guiding light and really helped bring the words to life. And Gerald Hausman was amazing um, at I Read Books that really, Gerald and my wife kind of taught me how to write through this. Elizabeth and you uh, met uh, on those sandy beaches uh, way back when, right? In in, uh, Britannia. Exactly. Back in uh, 1970. I'm not going to talk about that. I'll tell you everybody how old I am. But um, Bridget, I don't I don't I don't know if I have another book in me, but so many of the teachings and the themes that jump out at me, you know, thinking about the chapters and then they're they're all they're they're laid out anecdotally that shows you and me what amazing and exceptional people do in big moments, you know, like the Federers and the Sampras, not how they play tennis. It gives you stories about how they play tennis, 
But when you think about some of the things that they have, the power of belief, eight steps to success, these are just some of the chapters, moving forward without stress, great expectations, unreasonable expectations, maximizing your potential. These are all different themes. Um, One of my favorite chapters is how to keep a positive sense of inevitability. The great players that I've been around, no matter what, think they can do it. Pete Sampras won 2000 in Wimbledon. This is a great story. Won 2000 in Wimbledon. He had injured his right shin. Um, We got MRIs, acupuncture, x-rays. He could not walk. Okay. So the doctor said, you can play on this if you can handle the pain. He had so much swelling in in his right shin that the tendon that allows you to go on the balls of your feet could not move. It's like slamming a pencil in a door jam and then trying to shut the door. And so the doctor said, if we give you, uh, we'll give you a few shots before you play that'll last about three hours and you can, you're not going to injure yourself anymore, but it's just a matter of whether or not you want to do it. So that year, Pete, talk about putting pressure on yourself. That was the year he broke the record for the most major titles won, which was held by Roy Emerson. That was the year Pete won his seventh Wimbledon and 13th major event. Every here's what he did. You play every other day at a major event. He never touched a racket between when he walked off the court of a match until he walked on the court two days later to play his next match until the day before the finals. He literally would win the match, do his press conference, hibernate in his house. And I was with him. He could not he he could barely get off the couch and hop into the bathroom um, on the days off because his shin was so bad and he found a way to win. I still don't, I have no idea how he did it. I have no idea what powers that he had was able to focus through that. But that chapter, the power of the sense of inevitability is really what epitomizes what exceptional people do. And that's a great example of it. I mean, I, when he was done, I literally was like, I can't believe that happened after the tournament was over speaks to how um, our present is actually defined by the future we're trying to create, not by the past that we've come from. Oh, that's so deep. Exactly. (laughs) I want to ask you, because that brings me to to your your role at the Tennis Channel. I mean, what other moments, besides the moments that you experienced personally, or the moments you experienced as a coach with with Pete and with with Roger, what other, like, like, moments of just extreme euphoria moments have you seen that were just like historic to you? Uh, you know, I, I got to say, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one of them and going back to adversity, one of the, one of my happiest moments um, has been within the last few weeks sitting in my backyard with my wife, having a cocktail at like five o'clock with an umbrella over us sitting here, just kind of going, look at everything that's going on in the world right now. And look at what we're doing right now. Well, yeah. That's beautiful. I mean, I mean, it sounds so cliched, but it's the most amazing thing that we're able to sit there and have a 45 minute conversation with all of the crazy adversity that's going on. We're able to sit there and just appreciate that that moment, you know, for 45 minutes. You know, that's about perspective, right? That's about being able to appreciate where you are and what you're able to do. The stuff at the t- look, Bridget, about other things, I, I am so happy. I am such a fan of excellence and I am such a student of watching 
people deal with challenges and adversity. That's why the Tennis Channel is a godsend for me. I work with amazing people. I've got amazing bosses, incredible peers that help me kind of go through matches and evaluate and look at what's going on. And I get to do what I love. I get to watch two people that have no help that are on the court by themselves trying to problem solve with immense pressure, both internal and external. And I get to watch them try to problem solve and then try to tell the people what's happening and what they're doing and why or why it isn't working. How, I mean, how lucky am I? Yeah. That's pretty you darn, to, that's pretty darn good. Basically deconstruct a battle almost of, of two incredible um, Well, but it's, it's, it's about figures. inside that everybody has right. to, ultimately that's the biggest mountain to climb. Paul, let, let's turn to tennis at the time we have left. We are seeing the stirrings of, of, of sports kind of emerging or re-emerging. I know that, uh, you know, uh, there are events coming up in the fall uh, on the pro tennis uh, level that they're going to try and, and uh, you know, put on. And uh, what's your sense of, of where the next six months or nine months might take us uh, as far as uh, fans of tennis? It's been pretty challenging times. And I think a lot of people have been creative and created a bunch of little um, bubbles and hybrid exhibitions, nothing for ranking yet has happened. It's been a very interesting time. And I've enjoyed seeing all these people try to pivot and be creative. Um, because I think when it comes back, it's going to come back in a very different light uh, for the time being. And let's hope that that um, vaccine is, is on the way. And let's hope that it is, you know, sometime at the end of this year, beginning of next year, as I'm hearing, but who knows. Um, for the time being, uh, there's supposed to be tennis in the United States um, at the end of uh, middle of August, I believe around, I think it's around August 20th or 21st um, at uh, USDA National Tennis Center. They are planning on playing a tournament which usually exists in Cincinnati two weeks before, before the U.S. Open. They're planning on playing that event at the U.S. Open site wow. under a bubble followed by the US Open the next week. Wow. So they're trying they're trying to get everybody in one bubble there in New York. Right as of now, it is still on. Um right. the city open the city open which was in Washington DC on August 14th got canceled 2 days ago. There are a lot of logistical nightmares. People think tennis is a great sport during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It is a great sport for people that are trying to play. It's a nightmare sport for professionals because think of it, you have individual athletes coming from all over the world with all different kinds of government regulations to get in and out of their country. Um, so wow. that makes tennis really challenging. In the men's and women's tour, I believe there's 57 countries represented in the top 100 players. So there's that's a lot to manage. Yeah. So we hope the USTA has been working very closely with Governor Cuomo to try to make this safe. And by making it safe, they're trying to find a safe haven and basically take over a couple of hotels for all the players, have testing basically every second day, not have fans. Um, it will be broadcast by ESPN. Uh, we'll have some stuff on Tennis Channel as well. Um, and they're trying to really turn it into kind of a bubbled experience, but a lot of the players um, I'm hearing from Europe are ambivalent about coming over because they haven't, they don't know if yeah. they can get out 
And, and, and what happens is right after the U.S. Open, there's the Italian Open. And then um, there's also a Mutual Madrid, a tournament in Madrid, and then the French Open. So there's three events leading into the French Open, which come after the U.S. Open. And I'm hearing things in Europe are way better. Mm -hmm. All those tournaments seem really solid right mm -hmm. now. So players are going to have to decide, do I come to New York if it's on, not being able to come back, or do I stay here and just get ready for the European swing. So there are so many moving parts right now, but the bottom line is everyone's trying to figure out the safest way to do it and to have all the protocols and procedures set up from A to Z to try to keep the players um, and all of the, the folks, because there are, there are going to be people around there that have to run the facility and manage the matches, et cetera, and have to keep everybody safe. So it's still a big jigsaw puzzle, but right now the U.S. Open is still going to happen in just a, a little over a month's time. Yeah. Wow, Paul, that's it's amazing that you have all this knowledge, and there's so much hope. I guess uh, I feel hopeful from what you've said, um, and maybe that's because of coaching for life as well. You've this has been a really positive show in the midst of kind of a very difficult time. Well, it's always a pleasure, Bridget and Alec. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you letting me plug my book, Coaching for Life. It's on my website, paulanacone.com. It's also on Amazon and iRebooks.com. But uh, look, we're only as good as how optimistic we can stay, right? It's all through the lens we look through. Things are challenging, but I do believe in new beginnings. And this is one of those bus stops that we just want to get past and get back on the bus and keep going. Paul Anacone, thank you so much for being our guest on Sundays on the East End. Alec, any yeah, last words? Amen, brother. Look, man, I love you, Paul. Love your attitude. Uh, love your philosophy. And I certainly hope for everybody that's listened to the last hour or so that if you take away anything, it's uh, that uh, there's only one finish line and that we're, this is a game that we're playing. It's a journey and that you can always get better if you surround yourself with good people, know who you are and keep things simple. So everybody be well, stay well. And uh, we'll catch you next week.